invite you to open your Bible with me to the uh, Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. And while you're doing that, I just wanted to add, uh, we had the privilege this past week of uh, having Carlos come in, as, as Jeff said, uh, and Carlos had a uh, five-page uh, letter of confession that he read to the session uh, that was um, absolutely um, glorifying to the Lord. Uh, we, um, we just celebrate uh, what God can do in a, in a, a sinful person's heart. And um, the truth is, is that unless God does that in your heart and my heart, uh, we are lost. Uh, so um, I just hope you have an opportunity to get to know Carlos better, to hear his story of the transforming grace of God. I hope uh, you'll find it uh, convicting as you think about how uh, callous you can be about your own sin and encouraging as you just are uh, reminded of the grace of God that's available for you. I think this is the beauty of doing church together. And uh, I just want to um, just encourage you to receive our brother back. Uh, there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents uh, than the, uh, the 99 in, in the fold. And so, uh, Brother Carlos, uh, we rejoice over your beautiful repentance. Uh, we rejoice over the work of God's grace in your life. And um, we celebrate uh, that uh, just the, the beauty of Jesus who seeks out sinners like us and draws us to himself for his glory. So God bless you as you continue your walk with us. I'd like to um, read then this morning with you our text, Luke chapter 22. We're going to pick it up at verse 47. As you remember, Jesus has been in the Garden of Gethsemane, <clears throat> praying with his disciples. He's told them to watch, that they will not fall into temptation. And then we come to verse 47. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servants of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out, against, uh, out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. <clears throat> Let's ask the Lord's blessing. Father, we are deaf unless you give us ears to hear. We're blind unless you give us eyes to see. Uh, we are um, in desperate need to see Jesus again today, uh, the Savior of sinners. And so I pray, Lord, that you would be merciful and gracious to us and, and cause your face to shine upon us. Show us your salvation and give us the faith to believe it. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning we come to one of those uh, verses, uh, one of those stories in Scripture that, that everyone uh, knows. Uh, the, the betrayal of Judas uh, towards Jesus with a kiss is uh, something that uh, you could probably strike up a conversation uh, with anyone you meet uh, at, uh, in the world at large, and they would at least have some um, memory of, of hearing a story like that. Uh, Judas, of course, is, is well known. 
But what we want to see this morning is uh, the gospel. We want to see Jesus in this story, not just Judas. But uh, Judas's sin and uh, the, the behavior, the demeanor, the kindness, the compassion of Christ here in the midst of this story, the obedience of Jesus in this story is, uh, is just magnificent. It blazes from this text. Uh, there's been a remarkable change in uh, the demeanor of Christ uh, from the previous passage to this one. If you remember last week when we looked at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, we, we saw that Christ in a way that we had never seen him before, in a way the disciples had never seen him before. Uh, Jesus on the ground, uh, pleading with his Father. Uh, Jesus in agony, sweating drops of blood. There's a, there's a desperate, desperation about the Lord. He's, he's undone. As he looks to the cross to, to being um, made, being numbered with the transgressors, being, being forced to drink the cup of the Father's wrath. Have you ever just thought seriously about what it must be? be like, what it would be like if you were not saved? Have you ever thought seriously about what it, it, it will be like on that last day before a holy God who made you in his image and who you owed obedience and love and then to have your life laid out and to realize you had never once given him that obedience and love and this holy person is now condemning you and shaming you for eternity. Jesus bore that for all the sins of his elect. He bore that wrath, that judgment that we deserved. And, and so we find Jesus then undone in the garden. But now that's changed. And, and in verse 47, we, we find the Jesus that we remember in a sense. Jesus who's, who's calm, in control, completely of the circumstance. There's no fear whatsoever in Jesus' uh, in, in Jesus voice. Even though nothing's changed, the circumstances are exactly the same. The cross still waits. Everything that he grieved and sweated in agony about is still going to happen. All of it. And yet, Jesus here is completely calm and in control. What's changed? Well, what's changed is that he has... He has dealt with his father and he's, he's gone to the father, he's wrestled with the father and he has submitted himself with, with weeping but with beautiful obedience to the father's will and there he found courage and comfort. The, we're told in the previous text that an angel came and ministered to him, a, a gracious act of the father but the secret ingredient of Jesus' comfort and calm here in the, in the garden now is not the, the angel's presence, the, the secret ingredient is the surrender again of his whole being, mind, soul, body to the Father's will. Peter writes of it in his epistle in 1 Peter 2.23 that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. What did he do? He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus continued. He'd been doing this all of his life. He continued entrusting himself to his Father. Not my will, but yours be done. And friends, that is the secret ingredient for calm courage in a hard life, in dark moments. 
Uh, Christ was not able to go to the cross because he was superhuman. He was not superhuman. His, his desperate cries and overwhelming grief in the garden shows that he was a man like us in every way. He, he found the strength to, to go to the cross by committing himself, devoting himself to the Father's glory and the Father's will. Father, glorify your name. Thy will be done. I just wanted to, to, before we moved into the story itself, I just wanted us to see Jesus here and, and, and to learn from him because there's, there would be so much less, well, let me say it this way, there would be so much more calm and peace and joy in our lives, our marriages, our homes, our church, uh, if, if God's people would follow the Lord here. If we would devote ourselves the way our Savior did to this one thing, Father, glorify your name. Whatever's going on in your life this morning, Father, glorify your name. Whatever fears you have about what, what might lie ahead, Father, glorify your name. Whatever you feel you might be losing, whatever's threatened, whatever is, is weighing you down, Father, thy will be done. You see, when we submit ourselves to the, the, the goodness of God, truly say, Lord, I give it to you. Have your own way. When you give it to Jesus, you find calm. You find comfort. Christ here surrendered beautifully, gloriously to the will of his Father, is fearless now in the presence of men. He is ab- he's absolutely fearless. And, and now we come to the moment of his arrest. Uh, there's just the, the text breaks down pretty naturally into three parts: uh, the betrayal, verses 47, 48; the miracle, 49, 51; and the rebuke, 52 to 53. And so let's just let's just let Luke lead us in, uh, to the scene of of the arrest of Christ, the betrayal of Christ, and his arrest. So so first the betrayal. Uh, while he's still speaking to his disciples, suddenly there's this crowd that uh, led by Judas. He's leading them, and he drew near to Jesus to kiss him. Uh, we don't know how many people. It would, it would, Matthew says it was a great crowd, Matthew 26, 47. John 18, 3 says that uh, Judas was leading a cohort from the Roman garrison. A cohort would be 600 uh, soldiers. Uh, now, they would use the term to uh, apply to a, ver- a variety of numbers, but it's a, large, it's a large band of soldiers, and they would be joined by the temple guards and then other, um, other people who are associated with the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the chief priests, or at least representatives. So it's a significant group of people in the dead of night, and they come with their, their lanterns, and they come with their swords, they come with their clubs. To arrest Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Leading the way is Judas, one of the twelve. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all specifically point out that Judas was one of the twelve. It matters that he's one of the twelve. It matters because it, it highlights the horror of Judas's sin. Think of all the spiritual privileges that Judas had received. Judas was... Chosen, handpicked by Jesus. Remember, Jesus went and prayed, and then he, he chose the 12 disciples. 
And he had chosen Judas, of one of 12 men out of all the people in the world of that day. Judas was, was privileged to be with Jesus as one of the 12. And he was there then for all the teaching of Christ. Remember, Jesus would often talk in parables, and, and, and he talked in parables as a sign of judgment because people wouldn't quite be able to figure it out. But Jesus said to his disciples in Luke 8.10, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. And he would explain it to them. Judas was given the secrets of the kingdom of God. And he'd seen the miracles. He'd he'd seen the incredible compassion of Jesus as he would heal uh, blind Bartimaeus, as he would uh, cleanse the lepers, people utterly destitute, as as he would uh, make the lame to walk again. And and, um, he saw the power of Christ in these things, the divine power. He was there when Jesus said to the wind and the waves, quiet down, and they did. The wind and the waves. He was right there. And all the disciples are going, what manner of man is this? That even the winds and the waves obey him. Judas was right there. He knows that Jesus is not a mere man. And Judas had heard the warnings. Jesus had had taught, whoever acknowledges me before my Father in heaven, I I will also acknowledge him. But whoever denies me, I I will deny him. Before the angels of God. He's, he was there. He was there at the table just a few hours ago when, when Jesus said, The hand of, of the one who betrays me is on the table, but, but, uh, and, and it's going to happen as it's been de- de- determined, but woe to that man. It had been better for him if he had not been born. Judas was there. You see, what more could have Jesus had done for Judas than, than what he had done? But Judas would not believe. You see, Judas' love of money, his devotion to himself, and his pride, he just, he wouldn't, it wouldn't let him confess his sin. It would not let him humble himself and, and, and so be saved. And so here you find Judas, one of the twelve, doing the unthinkable. He betrays the Son of Man with a kiss. One of the twelve. But I think that this matters also because it shows us, it highlights Jesus' sorrow. <clears throat> this is not a stranger betraying him. It's not a, a, an acquaintance. It's not one of the 120 disciples who had sort of uh, committed themselves to Christ. This is one of the 12. And Jesus had, had chosen 12 on purpose. It didn't just sort of fall out that way. Jesus, you see, had come as the new David, as well as the second Adam. And, and Jesus had come to establish a new kingdom. And, and just as Jacob had his 12 sons and Israel had its 12 tribes, well, Jesus is coming to, uh, to create a new Israel. And so these are the new sons of Jacob. These are the new patriarchs of a new spiritual kingdom. They're the foundation of a new nation. Jesus had said, I'm, I'm gonna, you are the, you're going to be the foundation I'm going to build my church. Well, you see, the foundation has lost a stone. The 12 are no longer 12. Jacob has lost a son. Now there's 11. And so, you see, the devil certainly thought that he was was crumbling Christ's kingdom. 
He's desecrating uh, this perfect number and all, the, and all that it represents as Judas, one of the twelve, now betrays the Son of God. And, and, and because Judas is one of the twelve, <clears throat> there's also just <clears throat> a deeply personal reality here. Jesus cares for Judas. I believe we could say Jesus loves Judas. Remember when the rich young ruler came and, and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looked at him and loved him. And this, is, this is one of the 12. He spent hours with Judas. I'm sure there were things about Judas um, that, that, that Jesus would appreciate or, or that he would, he would love. This is a man made in the image of God. And now this... This one of the 12, you see, is, is, is drifting off to his, his ruin. I think the closest experience maybe we could have is a parent watching one of their children caught up in the powerful undertow of, of sin and drifting away, and we see it happening. Jesus has been watching Judas drift. Judas in love with himself. Jesus knows it. He sees it. Judas in love with money. And now the same Jesus who wept over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. This Jesus watches Judas approach to commit the sin that would seal his eternal ruin. And I think you can hear then the compassion in Jesus' voice. Judas, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? There's such, there's such compassion, such such kindness, such love, even for Judas. There's, because you see, there's a, there's a loving Judas. There's a warning here. Are you going to betray the Son of Man, Judas? You see, do, do, you, do, you, do you remember who I am? Judas knows what the Son of Man means. He's a Jewish man. He knows it comes from Daniel 7. He knows that it was Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. It's not a new phrase. Daniel there in, in, in chapter 7 says, In the night visions I saw that there came one like a son of man, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And Jesus comes and says, You're going to throw yourself up against that? He's reminding Judas of who he was, and the awful, awful truth then of what Judas was about to do, and, and, and giving Judas then an opportunity to, to wake up. You see that sometimes in, in, in a novel or in a movie, uh, right, where someone is about to commit an awful crime, and the gun is in their hand, and, and they're, they're just about to pull the trigger, and then suddenly they come to their senses, and they realize what they're about to do, and with horror, they throw the gun away and turn. Well, that's not what Judas does. He pulls the trigger. Can you imagine Jesus saying to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And then Judas kisses him. You see, this, this is the horror of the human heart. Um, we need to realize Judas is not a super sinner. He's not some other category. 
The horror of Judas is that he is a perfectly normal sinner. I remember, uh, I, don't, I don't know, I won't be able to tell you when, but uh, it was a while back where I read an article of someone who interviewed serial killers and just kind of went out and said, what, what makes a serial killer tick? What is the, what's, the, what's the ingredient, the unique thing about a serial killer that, that makes him able to do these things? And, and, and the, this uh, journalist came back with the, the chilling truth that there's nothing unique about the serial killer at all. He's just the guy that lives next door. He's just the person maybe that goes to church and, and he's evil. See, he, Judas is not a supernatural sinner. He, he's, he's just like, he's just like a normal sinner. That's what he is. Who's been left to go on his own wicked way. And, and it just reminds us that there is nothing, no sin that we are incapable of committing even this. It could have been you. It could have been me. But Judas performs the act and then it's done. And it, and it can't be undone. It, it can't be undone. I remember we had a lady come and talk to us about abortion. And she said just one of the, one of the awful things about abortion is that when it's done, it, it, can't, be, it can't be undone. You, you don't get to take it back. You, you just can't take it back. It's done. And, and his eternal doom is sealed. Not because Jesus would not be willing to forgive, but because Judas would not be able to repent. He wouldn't be given that gift. Peter would. Judas wouldn't. And so I think this is just a scene that we need to tremble over. Because there but for the grace of God go you and, and I. But Jesus is a loving Savior of sinners, even his enemies. And so we come to the miracle when those who were around him saw what would follow. They said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Luke doesn't tell us who begins swinging. Uh, Matthew doesn't tell us. John, um, Mark doesn't tell us. John tells us. Because everybody knew by then anyhow. John was writing uh, years after, uh, maybe 50 years after these events. And so John tells us uh, it's Peter. No surprise there. It's Peter being true to form. It's Peter doing what Peter does. Uh, with the best of intentions, he leaps into the fray and becomes an obstacle to the purposes of Christ and an enemy of his own salvation. Uh, Peter's lack of spiritual understanding is only matched by his lack of martial ability. He's a fisherman, not a swordsman. All he accomplishes with his mighty swing is the re to remove the ear of a slave. It's, it's not a high watermark in the annals of military history. But there's a critically important lesson to be learned in it. Um, you see, because once again, Peter, like many of us, assume that the primary work of a disciple is to do things for Jesus. That's what Peter thinks the job description is. Disciples do things for the master. Well, it's, it's just not right. It's fundamentally wrong. The primary work of a disciple is to receive things from Jesus. That's the primary work. We think that the, the, the primary work of a Christian is to sort of fight for the cause. The primary work of a Christian is to believe in the Savior. Jerry Bilkison, in an excellent article on this, 
says, we are so easily persuaded to see Christianity as a cause in which we must fight. We see many enemies who threaten us. We become very anxious and perhaps even angry when we see evil advancing. But we should remember that Christianity is not, in sum and substance, a cause to be fought outside of us as much as it is a work of grace within us. That grace calls us to rest in the finished work of Christ. If we had to add one stroke to the cause of our salvation, we would be lost forever. That's absolutely true. If Jesus was waiting for you to to add one stroke to the work, uh, you would be lost. And so Jesus, notice, puts an immediate end to it. No more of this. Done. And not only does Jesus uh, rebuke Peter, he heals the servant And now while the other gospel accounts record the severing of the ear, Luke is the only one who records the healing of it. Uh, Luke is a physician. That would catch his attention. But but it's a wonderful addition to the gospel account because it, it just highlights again the beauty of Jesus. Why would Jesus do this? Do you know who this man is? We're told who he is. He's the servant, a slave of Caiaphas, the high priest. If Jesus has any uh, enemy number one, Caiaphas is a likely candidate. Caiaphas hates Jesus with every fiber in his being. We're going to see that when Jesus comes to trial before Caiaphas, the wickedness of this man. The high priest doesn't believe in, uh, in a resurrection. Completely a political figure. A, a perverse, wicked man. And this is his servant. This is his personal assistant, Malchus, we're told, is his name in John's gospel again. Malchus would be there in Caiaphas' place. Malchus would be there to carry out Caiaphas' desire. Malchus is a full accomplice in in this demonic plan to kill Jesus. Uh, he He is completely a part of it. He's leading the way. He's there to make sure it happens. And you can just sense maybe his confidence. He, it, it's not likely he gets to lead this huge army of, of soldiers and all the strength of it. I mean, all the swords and these big, strong guys, and they got clubs. It, it, it's just, it would sort of make a guy feel very viral, very strong, very capable. And then, and then everything changes. Because now suddenly Malchus is, he's just a guy in the middle of the night, in a place he's not really sure, uh, with, with great screaming pain, and there's blood pouring down his neck, and he's face to face with Jesus for the first time, almost certainly, in his life. The, the man he'd come to arrest and see that he was put to death. And, and then the most incredible thing happened is, is, is Malchus's undoubtedly holding his, his wounded head, Jesus reaches, and you have to know Jesus looks him in the eye. You don't, you don't do this without, without noticing him and seeing him. And Jesus, with eyes full of love and full of compassion, Jesus heals the ear with a touch, perfectly, immediately, and miraculously. Who is this man? This is Jesus. He's the friend of slaves and sinners. We tend to see this as one of the lesser miracles, but it is full of poignant beauty. Do you realize it's the last miracle of Christ before his death? 
in his last free act with his hands, they're about to be bound. And then they're going to be nailed to a Roman cross. But the last free thing that Jesus did with his hand was heal the slave of his arch enemy. Jesus really is showing mercy to two people here, to Peter and to Malchus. Peter has gotten himself in a mess of trouble. Peter, by taking up arms, has now made himself an enemy of the state. He's resisting arrest. He's guilty of rebellion. And he has uh, really placed the mission in jeopardy because now uh, the, the enemies of Christ can charge Jesus actually with leading a rebellion. They can charge Jesus with sin. But Jesus, you see, um, is so gracious. Bilkus again points out that Peter would have no one to blame but himself if his discipleship and ministry had ended right at this point. If Jesus had said, uh, that's enough of you, out, gone. He'd already lost one. Peter would have no one to blame but himself. But you see, Jesus is protecting Peter from the judgment that Peter absolutely deserves. Jesus covers the sin by, wrong, by making right what had been wrong. But the offense, you see, was, was, was restored. The, the, the ear was, was replaced better than it had been, undoubtedly. And here you, you just have a snapshot, of the, a snapshot of the gospel. This is why Jesus came, you see. He's, he's going to go to the cross precisely to do this thing, to cover the offense that we have committed against God, this gaping wound in divine justice that, that we've caused by our sin, this wound that, that is screaming to be answered. Jesus now comes to, by his own righteousness and obedience, to cover the wound. So that we can be spared and loved and included. It's wonderful mercy here to Peter, but it's also so much, such beautiful mercy to Malchus. One of the problems with in Malchus's condition is he's just a slave. Whatever aid he is to Caiaphas, he is he's a slave, and and slaves don't matter in the Roman world. And it's it's only an ear. It's not like you know it's this mortal wound. And so no one else in the story seems to be concerned. No one leaps to Malchus' defense. He's a slave. It's an ear. No one's concerned but, but Jesus. Geldenheis says, Jesus does not know what small wounds are. And Jesus does not know what insignificant people are. Is that, is that good news? He doesn't know what insignificant people are. And he doesn't know what small wounds are. Come to me, right, with all your griefs. Big and small. And so moved, you see, with love even for his enemies, Jesus heals Malchus, the slave to Caiaphas, the man who had who'd come to arrest him. It's a wonderful picture of the gospel. Do you realize that the only people that Jesus saves are people who once were just like Malchus, slaves to sin, following the prince of the ruler of the air, willing servants and, and aides, accomplices to the devil's purposes? It's the only people that get saved are people like Malchus, because that's the only people there are. And this is how God um, works out his salvation. At some moment in your life, if you're a Christian, God uh, opened your eyes uh, because you were just kind of doing your thing and moving through life and feeling pretty good or confident or, or struggling, whatever it might be, but, but you'd never really met Jesus. And then, and then um, oftentimes God will bring you to a, a place where, where you sense your wound and, and you find Jesus there as the only one who can possibly help and heal you. And Jesus works his regenerating power and, 
and you come to faith and you repent and you made a new creation. That's what God did in, in Carlos's life. That's what it means to be saved. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. It had to be a stunning event for Malchus. No one had ever seen him the way Jesus saw him, and no one had loved him the way Jesus loved him. We don't, we don't know for sure. We're not told for sure, but many commentators believe that uh, the fact that John, writing 50 years later, um, names Malchus means that Malchus would have been known to the readers, which means that Malchus would have been a member of the church. I would not be surprised at all to, to shake hands with Malchus someday in eternity. It's the kindness of God, isn't it, that leads us to repentance. And then finally, there's the rebuke. Jesus rebukes these leaders, these, these, these armed men. He says, I was with you every day. Why don't you lay hands on me at the temple in the middle of the day? Why, why this, all, this, all these, these, these swords and clubs and night? And, why didn't you grab me when, you, when I was right there? Well, everybody knows the answer to that. It's because they're cowards. They were afraid of the crowds. And Jesus, with laser precision, highlights their cowardice. They're the frightened ones, and they should be. They're, they're standing in the presence of the Son of God, the one who knit them together in their mother's womb. That's who they've come to get. The one who holds their existence in his hand. If he would simply will that they die, if he would will that they disappear, they will. Because he upholds all things by the power of his own will. And so they stand there and breathe only by his grace and the only reason they're allowed to arrest him is because Jesus acknowledges, Jesus tells them, he explains the truth of what's going on. This is your hour. They have no sense of the cosmic spiritual conflict that they are participating in. But Jesus says, this is the hour of the power of darkness. You're there as a servant of the devil. The devil has been allowed this time to do his work. And, and that's the beauty here of Jesus' words because it shows us that, that behind this hour of darkness is the divine plan and sovereign purpose of God. This is, this is fundamentally Jesus' hour. He's been talking about it all of his ministry. And, and in John 12, Jesus recognizes that his hour now has come. Now is my soul troubled, John 12, 27. And what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? No, but for, for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. This is his hour. It's the hour of darkness, you see, but it's going to serve. It must serve by the sovereignty of God, the saving purposes of God. It's the most awful hour in human history, and yet the most precious hour in human history, because now the Son of God is going to lay down his life as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. The devil is going to do his worst thinking that this is his time of, of power, but he's going to very soon find himself caught in his own trap and crushed under the victorious foot of Christ Jesus. It's Jesus' hour. This is Christ going forth to war, bearing the shame of men to free captives and slaves of sin and death. It's, an, it's a glorious hour. And so what, what do we close with here? Let me give you three things to think about. I want you, as, as you think of this text, to, to see the beauty of Jesus Christ, the lover of sinners. See the compassion of Christ, even for Judas, the, the grace of Christ for Peter, the mercy of Christ for Malchus. Every, for every person Jesus meets here, he's full of grace. Do you, is that the Jesus you know? 
Or is the Jesus you know a taskmaster? Is the Jesus you know just someone who's, who's telling you, do better, you, you need to do more, you need to do better? Meet, meet this Jesus and see the beauty of this Jesus. I wonder if, I know in my own life that, that so often um, I don't love Jesus as I should love him because I don't see the beauty of Jesus the way I, the way I should see it. I'm trying to do things as a disciple instead of gladly receiving things as a disciple. See the beauty of Jesus in his obedience to the Father, his love for sinners. And see the certainty of your salvation then. That Jesus, he knows what he's about. He knows where he's going. He knows what he's come to do. And he's committed to it for you, for me, for sinners, for his enemies. And that if you repent and confess your sin, that then this, this is what's happened to you in Christ. That, that, the, that the devil that is out to get you and the evil that is within you cannot destroy you. Not if you go to Christ. And if you don't go to Christ, you're going to stand right alongside of Judas on the last day. And all the wrath that you deserve for all of your sin is going to come down on your head just like Judas. And so, friend, I don't know where your heart is. I don't know. But I I pray that you know and and that if you don't know, that the Lord will show you. These are are eternal things. Judas kisses him and then goes to hell, friends. And we will too, unless Jesus saves us. Unless he rescues us. But I'd like to close just this one last thing. The hope that we can have in dark hours. What this story tells us is that in the darkest of hours, God is working out his purposes. And that means that in all the dark hours of our life, he's doing the same thing if we belong to him. No matter how full of evil the darkness that you're in maybe right now, how full of, of, of wrong and, and, uh, and grief and shame and sin, whatever, however full it might seem this hour that you're in, it's there by the saving plan and saving purpose of God. John Newton, I'm reading a book by Tony Ranke, I highly recommend it, it's just called Newton. And uh, he marvels at God's saving ways. He, he freely acknowledges that if God desired, he could just remove all darkness from our life, right? He could remove all sin from our life. But he doesn't. He doesn't. And that's because he has a purpose for the darkness. Newton says sin remains in the Christian because Christ is overruling it. See? Sin remains in the Christian because... Christ is overruling the Christian. Not because sin is stronger than grace. You don't, you know they have this battle going on and there's grace and, and then there's sin and they're just sort of waging war with each other. The, the, the flesh and the spirit are waging war, but, but the hour is there by God's appointment and sin is there because Jesus is overruling that darkness to carry out his purposes. So though sin wars, it shall not reign. And though it breaks our peace, it cannot separate us from his love. Friend, let that be an encouragement to you this morning. I hope Malchus came to faith. If not, his healed ear and the mercy of Jesus to him in that healing would be a testimony, wouldn't it? On that last day, Malchus, why didn't you believe? How many mercies has God shown to you? 
in your life? How many privileges? How many advantages? Friend, have you responded to the Savior then in faith and hope and love? Have you, have you bowed your knee to him? Do you love Jesus? May God grant that he gives us that gift. It's what we need. Because when we, when we have that, then we see Jesus. And that's life. May God grant it. Amen. Oh, God in heaven, I thank you for this word. I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for Jesus. Lord, help us to love Jesus. He is so beautiful. He's so kind. He's so com- full of compassion for sinners. Lord, we are mortal souls. We are, mortal, we are people with mortal bodies and immortal souls. We are f- f- just flicking our way through life day after day, and, and very soon we will, we will leave our body and go to the presence of the Lord. And Lord, on, on that day, everything will be crystallized and made clear. And so in light of eternity, Lord, I pray that we would, we would come to Jesus to be saved by him and come to Jesus for the grace that he gives, come to Jesus for the love that he so lavishes upon those who come in, in repentance and faith. Lord, I thank you that our salvation is your work from beginning to end. We come, Lord, not to do things for you, but we come to, to receive what only you can give. But Jesus, in all the things that you give, give us yourself. May the Holy Spirit, Lord, help us to see you and to delight in you, to trust in you. You are such a friend of sinners. We thank you for the love that you've given to us in your, in your life and your death and your resurrection and, and as you intercede for us still. Lord, comfort those who are grieving and, and bring peace to those who are just restless in their soul. And, and for those who are weighed down with shame and guilt, Lord, give the freedom and the joy of the water of salvation. And we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.